Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the uprising sparked by the killing of George Floyd, but in the context of a world in which that event was just the last straw in an uncountable series of straws. Clips today come from Code Switch, Democracy Now!, The Daily Show, Newsbeat, This Is Hell, Sojourner Truth Radio, The Bugle, In the Thick, The Young Turks, The Brian Lehrer Show, The Takeaway, and Stay Tuned with Preet. America is still taking its sweet time in even recognizing our humanity in terms of its laws, in terms of its mores, in terms of its practices. And I say America in a larger sense, not simply the law enforcement folks who would spray tear gas on protesters outraged by George Floyd's death in Minneapolis. Lying, screaming for his mother and his life under the knee, the literal knee of law enforcement. These folks having tear gas shot at them during a a pandemic that attacks our pulmonary system. A pandemic that's attacking black communities disproportionately. The power of that image, especially when juxtaposed when the armed demonstrators in Michigan threatening lawmakers in an effort to essentially want to die faster or want the right to die faster is a real encapsulation of, of, of where we are in this country and the fact that we have not moved an inch since these videos became so popular. So we have to understand what is their value? When are we going to see the kind of change that this kind of shock and awe should be provoking? I will defer judgment on whether or not this is going to be the moment that finally everyone will understand exactly what's happening in the black communities around this country with regards to policing and over-policing and militarized policing. I, After Ferguson, it's hard to hold your breath. It's hard to hold your breath when... You know, a 12-year-old kid gets gunned down with a toy gun in the city that you grew up in, as was the case for me with Tamir Rice. And the city kind of just kind of shrugs and everyone moves on. Tamir Rice would have been 18 in June. And... America moves on. America moves forward. I think to a large extent, white power structure waits for us as black people, especially to quiet down, settle down, to get it out of our system in terms of unrest or in terms of online protests. I'll be writing my column and that that moment will, will happen. But whether or not it will result in any concrete change is really up to people who 
maybe least involved with the trauma. It, it matters whether or not if people who are not affected by this do something. Tamika, I mean, several people have pointed out that these protests are very different from the protests uh, about previous uh, uh, black uh, African-Americans killed by uh, the police from Trayvon Martin to Eric Garner. Um, first of all, these protests spread very rapidly uh, across the U.S., but also across the world from New Zealand to Brazil to France and also with much greater intensity um, and many observers and protesters themselves have said they've never witnessed such an outpouring of grief and anger on such a mass scale. Now, do you think that the intensity and the range of these protests, as some say, might actually result in substantive change? You've said that we can't uh, rely any longer on just charges against police officers, but also prosecutions. Do you think it's likely that the scale of these protests, unlike the protests that have preceded them, may actually make that possible? Well, I mean, certainly you are right. The protests that we're seeing today and the ways in which people are engaged and sustaining for so many days is very strong. I think we saw something similar around Trayvon Martin's death when George Zimmerman was found not guilty. Uh, we saw real energy across the country where the Black Lives Matter movement um, was sparked. But of course, in this particular moment, it is intensified. And I think that from Trayvon Martin and even cases before that, leading up to today, all of it comes together and you see that energy. But particularly in the last uh, month, month and a half, we know that people have literally been traumatized by not one, not two, but three different incidents um, where I, I know for sure I've personally been traumatized. Ahmaud Arbery, people watched a video where it was clear that that young man was hunted and he was hunted by two different cars in which they boxed him in and he was shot with a shotgun on the streets just for jogging. Then we see Breonna Taylor. Breonna Taylor is a young 26-year-old woman, an EMT worker. So she is a first responder at a time when people are also stressed and going through a lot as it relates to COVID-19. 100,000 plus Americans um, who have died at the hands of an incompetent uh, administration. And then we come to George Floyd, in which we watch him die. We literally watch his life leave his body. The difference to me in the Eric Garner situation is that he's as he's being choked, there's some movement of people around. But in this situation, we see George Floyd literally held, handcuffed, down, suffocating. And as the attorney Ben Crump said, 
it was he was being tortured by someone who literally sat in his neck and was there trying to kill him. And he succeeded. So therefore, there's a level of trauma that I believe has built up in individuals across this country. And it's no longer just a black protest or a black movement. At this point, we're looking at a a nation and a world that has decided that what we saw happen on camera, not just in one incident, but Ahmaud Arbery and this incident is no longer acceptable. And we cannot continue to meet and ask and cry and beg for change. People have taken to the streets to demand change. I think Amy Cooper was one of the first moments that, that, you know, one of the first dominoes that, that, that we saw get knocked down post-corona for many people. And that was a world where you quickly realize that while everyone is facing the battle against coronavirus, black people in America are still facing the battle against racism and coronavirus. And the reason I say it's a domino is because think about how many black Americans just have read and seen the news of how black people are disproportionately affected by coronavirus, and not because of something inherently inside black people, but rather because of the lives black people have lived in America for so long. You know, coronavirus exposed all of it. And now here you had this woman who, we've all seen the video now, blatantly blatantly knew how to use the power of, of, of her whiteness to threaten the life of another man and his blackness. What we saw with her was a really, really powerful, explicit example of, of an understanding of racism in a structural way. When she looked, when she looked at, 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 at that man, when she looked at Cooper and she said to him, I'm gonna call 911 and I'm gonna tell them there's an African-American man threatening my life. She knew how powerful that was. And that in itself is telling, you know, it tells you how she perceives the police. It tells you how she perceives her perception or her relationship with the police as a white woman. It shows you how she perceives a black man's relationship with the police and the police's relationship with him. It's, it was, it was really, it was, it was, it was powerful. Because so many people act like they don't know what, what, what black Americans are talking about when they say it. And yet Amy Cooper had a distinct understanding. She was like, oh, I know. I know that you're, you're afraid of in- interacting with the police because there is a presumption of your guilt because of your blackness. I know that as a white woman, I can weaponize this tool against you. And I know that by the time we've sifted through who was right or wrong, there's a good chance that you will have lost in some way, shape or form. And so for me, that was, that was the first domino. And so now you, you're living in a world where so many people are watching this video. So many people are being triggered because in many ways it was like a, it was like a gotcha. You know, it was like a, it was like, it was like the curtain had been pulled back. Aha. So you do this because it's always been spoken about, but this was like, it was powerful to see it being used. And I think a lot of people were triggered by that. A lot of people, a lot of people were like, damn, 
we, we knew it was real, but this is like real, real, you know? I think a lot of people also angry that some of the outrage that came to her was because of her dog. Uh, and I mean, I get it, you know, but, but it was, it was, a lot of people felt like, a lot of people felt like it would have been great if the dog shelters had the same, I guess, power or, or, or if police departments were run by the people who run dog shelters because they seemed to act like this. They didn't waste time. They were like, nope, we'd like our dog back, lady. Which I'm going to be honest, I think was, that was a, that was a, I mean, that was a hell of a punishment. Her job is one thing, taking a white lady's dog. And that was a nice dog. And so that was the first domino, you know? It was the first domino where I felt like you, you could feel something stirring. And all of this, again, is in the backdrop. backdrop. It's, it's coronavirus has happened. The numbers have come out. You know, the story of Ahmad Arbery in Georgia, that story has come out. All of these things are happening. And then the video of George Floyd comes out. And I don't know what made that video more painful for people to watch. The fact that that man was having his life taken in front of our eyes the fact that we're watching someone being murdered by someone whose job is to protect and serve, or the fact that he seemed so calm doing it, you know? Oftentimes we always told that police feared for their life. It was like a threat. And, and you know, you, you, you always feel like an asshole when, when you're like, you didn't fear for your life. How, why did you fear for your life? How did you fear? But now more and more we're starting to see that it's like, no, it doesn't seem like there's a fear. It just seems like it's, you can do it so you did it. There was a black man on the ground in handcuffs and you, you could take his life so you did. Almost knowing that there would be no ramifications. And then again, everyone on the internet has to watch this. Everyone sees it. It's, it floods our timelines as people. And, and I think one ray of sunshine for me in that moment was seeing how many people instantly condemned what they saw, you know? And maybe it's because I'm an optimistic person, but I, I, I don't think I've ever seen anything like that, especially not in America. I haven't seen a police video come out and, and just see across the board. I mean, even Fox News commentators and, and police chiefs from around the country immediately condemning what they saw. No questions, not what was he doing, not just going, no, this, what happened here was wrong, it was wrong. This person got murdered on camera. And then the police were fired, great. But I, I think what people take for granted is, is, is how much for so many people that feels like nothing, you know? How, how, how many of us as, as human beings can take the life of another human being and then have firing be the worst thing that happens to us? And yes, we don't know where the case will go. Don't get me wrong, but it just it it feels like there is no moment of justice. There is no, you know, if you're watching a movie, you'd at least want the cops. You'd want to see the perpetrators in handcuffs. You'd want to see the perpetrators facing some sort of justice. Yes, they might come out on bail, etc. But I think there's a lot of catharsis that comes with seeing that justice being doled out. When the riots happened, that for me was an interesting culmination of everything. I saw so many people online saying. 
these riots are disgusting. This is not how a society should be run. You do not loot and you do not burn and you do not, this is not how our society is built. And that, that actually triggered something in me where I was like, man, okay, society, what, but what is society? And fundamentally, when you boil it down, society is a contract. It's a contract that we sign as human beings amongst each other. We sign a contract with each other as people, whether it's spoken or unspoken, and we say, amongst this group of us, we agree in common rules, common ideals, and common practices that are going to define us as a group. That's what I think a society is. It's a contract. And as with most contracts, the contract is only as strong as the people who are, who are abiding by it. But if you think of being a black person in America who is living in Minneapolis or Minnesota or any place where you're not having a good time, ask yourself this question when you watch those people, what vested interest do they have in maintaining the contract? Why, like, why don't we all loot? Why, why don't, why doesn't everybody take, why doesn't, because we've agreed on things. There are so many people who are starving out there. There's so many people who don't have, there's so many people, there are people who are destitute. There are people who, when the virus hits and they don't have a second paycheck already broke, which is insane, but that's, that's the reality. But still think about how many people who don't have, the have nots say, you know what? I'm still going to play by the rules, even though I have nothing, because I still wish for the society to work and exist. And then some members of that society, namely black American people, watch time and time again how the contract that they have signed with society is not being honored by the society that has forced them to sign it with them. When you watch Ahmad Arbery being shot and you hear that those men have been released and were it not for the video and the outrage, those people would be living their lives what part of the contract is that in society? When, when you see George Floyd on the ground and you see a man losing his life in a way that no person should ever have to lose their life at the hands of someone who's supposed to enforce the law, what part of the contract is that? And a lot of people say, well, what good does this do? Yeah, but what, what good doesn't it do? That's the question people don't ask the other way around. What good does it do to loot Target? What is it, how does it help you to loot Target? Yeah, but how does it help you to not loot Target? Answer that question. Because the only reason you didn't loot Target before was because you were upholding society's contract. There is no contract if law and people in power don't uphold their end of it. And that's the thing I think people don't understand sometimes is that, is that we need people at the top to be the most accountable because they are the ones who are basically setting the tone and the tenor for everything that we do in society. It's the same way we tell parents to set an example for their kids. The same way we tell captains or coaches to set an example for their players. The same way you tell teachers to set an example for their students. The reason we do that is because we understand in society that if you lead by example, there is a good chance that people will follow that example that you have set. And so if the example law enforcement is setting is that they do not adhere to the laws, then why should the citizens of that society adhere to the laws when in fact the law enforces themselves don't? Remember the rebellions took place 
all throughout the 1960s. In fact, I'm going to say this, these urban rebellions have taken place throughout American history. You know, where it just proves the rule where there is oppression, there is resistance. You know, black people had uprisings in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, into the 21st century. Even in the 21st century, this is not the first urban disturbance, urban uprising, urban rebellion that we've had. And almost all of these rebellions have been sparked by incidents of police brutality. You know, it's very difficult. I'm sure there's some that were sparked by other incidents. But it's very difficult for me to think of one where police brutality, a brutal act, a brutal murder, brutal beating by police did not trigger, did not light a fire to uh, years of oppression. And then people just explode. You know, these rebellions, they're not planned. You know, there's as much planning that goes into these rebellions as there is for a hurricane or a tornado. When the conditions are right, that's when they happen. You can't predict it for sure. You, you could see, you could predict, you could see it coming, but you don't know where that tornado is going to touch down first. And that's what these rebellions are. They are the result of social oppression and pressure built up over the years. And then suddenly when people just, one thing, is the tipping point when people say, I just can't take no more. And they just go out and they do what they want to do. You know, uh, some people do what they want to do. In one sense, it's terrible, right? The destruction that's left in the wake of these things. But in another sense, it's fine. Because you ignored for years the fact that the police were unjustly harassing, brutalizing, beating, killing, violating the constitutional rights of people. You turned your eyes away from that for years. People, the activists marched and protested, and you ignored them. So now you reap the whirlwind. I tell these people that don't come to me to ask me to condemn people who are doing these things. If you didn't want these disturbances to happen, then you should end the police brutality. Every time we say enough is enough, you must end this from happening. And then there's a whole passion play that's enacted out in every city over and over again. People crying for reform, promising things, but only touching the edges of the structure, never going to the heart of the matter. And then you have these explosions. This is the cost of ignoring the cries of people who are oppressed and who want an end to their oppression. So while I, I have sympathy for those small business owners, you know, who get caught up in this stuff, but you too. You too, small business owner. When did you speak out against injustice? When did you take a stand with the oppressed? You didn't. You took their money. 
year after year after year, and you ignored what was going on in your community, and now you reap the whirlwind. The Bible says you reap what you sow. An American is reaping what she sown by ignoring decade after decade the demand to radically reform. Reform doesn't begin to describe what must be done to the police in America. It has to be totally deconstructed and reconstructed again because it was constructed on the basis of racial oppression. Growing out of the slave patrols of the 19th century, supporting being, in fact, the bulwark. When you look at these history books, in most of the pictures, you don't see the Ku Klux Klan. The Klan rides at night. In most of those pictures, you see police beating, water hosing, putting dogs on the people who were fighting against Jim Crow racial apartheid in America. The police were an essential component in the maintenance of the system of racial slavery and the system of racial apartheid in America, the legal system. And now it is a critical component in the enforcement of the de facto system that continues after the deconstruction of Jim Crow segregation, of the segregationist law. It's only the laws that have been removed, you know. The segregation is still there. The power relationships of the old period are still there. And the structure of white superordination and black subordination is still there. People get sucked in to focusing on looting and small businesses being hurt uh, for the same reason people get sucked in and narratives like so-called black on black crime. The message is essentially the reaction of people to oppression is just as bad or worse than the conditions that caused it. And it's basically a form of uh, victim blaming. People they find it so much easier to confront the person on the street, you know, reacting at a protest and they do the systemic problems that are in front of us. And, you know, if the police were not killing black people, we wouldn't have these, you know, so-called looters in the first place. Right. And I want to challenge people's use of that word too, um, as well as the word riot, because these are really racialized um, words that have a lot of black death and stigma and oppression attached to them. Um, Black people's introduction and our, our, you know, beginning in this country was robbery. We're, we are stolen people. Our labor is stolen. Our lives are still being stolen by the police and they always have been. And we're even being robbed of every resource that's supposed to be a guaranteed right um, as citizens in this country, which we're not actually truly considered. So we've had to fight and die just to get what we have now, which is not enough. And we're descended, you know, from people who had it made illegal for us to read and write. And here we are now having to still fight for education, healthcare, housing, and the limited labor protections that we have, right? In this moment, it's absurd to focus on Black people uprising and taking things um, when there are 42 million people currently out of work and unemployed since this pandemic happened. 
there's a gargantuan robbery taking place on Wall Street by the wealthy in this country. CEOs who make so much money that it would take several lifetimes to spend won't even give their employees health care. And then someone takes something out of a multinational corporation's property that rakes in billions while exploiting the people who work there. And people sympathize more with the property. That's actually absurd. Um, you hear people say, you know, this is why the police treat y'all like that, which reinforces the criminalization and racial profiling and actually makes the point that the police are racist. Um, and you hear people say stuff like, you know, stop, this is going to make people think badly about us. But people have to actually focus on the real theft that's happening. And that's capitalism, because capitalism created these conditions to begin with. Um, I was reading, I was actually reading before we got on the call, I was reading Malcolm X's speech at the London School of Economics. And he was talking about the uprising in New York. I think it was in 1965 when he uh, was there. But he was talking about this, too. He was saying, you know, that the riots weren't weren't riots in the first place. And he was saying that they were reactions to police brutality. And when store windows were broken in the black community, it made it appear that this was, you know, something that was being done by people who were, you know, he said, like hoodlums and vagrants and criminals when they were actually people reacting to civil rights violations. So, you know, people get people get distracted and they get uh, steered away from the actual focus of what things should be. Uh, folks are reacting to property because they can't necessarily address the the issues at hand in a society that has disempowered people. So when you go to the when you go to the voting booths and you're disenfranchised and you keep having to vote for somebody in a system where all of these politicians are really in cahoots and you know, I think you have the illusion of choice, then of course you're going to react in ways eventually that are going to be, you know, against the things that are right in front of you. People are going to react that way. It's, it's, it makes sense. But the true issue at hand is the capitalist theft that is making people have to do that in the first place. Because if that wasn't in existence, we wouldn't be here, would we? When there was the 50th anniversary of what took place in Detroit back in 1968, 67. Uh, the uh, Detroit Free Press, Detroit News, they ran a front page article about how they no longer were going to be referring to it as they had for 50 years as the riots that were taking place in Detroit. Instead, they started to refer to it as an uprising. And finally, in both the Detroit Free Press and the Detroit News, they only refer to those what was called what were called riots as an uprising. What is wrong with the word riot? What does it mislead us into thinking? How does it take away the political agency of the people on the ground who are protesting against police violence? Well, ultimately, I think that when you call it a riot again, there's a history there. Um, you can think about like the term race riot. You hear the massacre that occurred on Black Wall Street in Tulsa. You hear that referred to as a race riot in the uh, old newspaper clippings. And there are a lot of massacres of black people historically that were called race riots. Um, you know, all of this language is very, very uh, purposeful. And we have to be careful about how we describe things, especially if you hear the state and the media using these terms, you have to be extremely careful because it's so intentional and it's used as a way 
to actually get people to not sympathize, have empathy, and not share solidarity with the people on the ground who are fighting back against an unjust system. So we don't want to get caught in this good protester versus bad protester narrative stuff. We don't want to get involved in and redu- reproducing uh, police narratives about good versus bad protesters. If we start doing that, then we risk uh, starting to sympathize with getting people to sympathize with the police rather than ourselves. And, you know, the issues that created this problem in the first place, again, are what we need to focus on. So there are like a lot of ways to protest and we can't be certain, you know, why someone is stealing or why someone is uh, taking or what they're, you know, going to do with what they took afterwards. You know, there are people out here who are, you know, reclaiming goods because they want to distribute them to people in need. Um, There are people who are doing that because they view taking back in that way a political act. It's it's reclaiming. Um, You know, there are people who take things because they feel like it, too. There are people who take things because they need them. So the concern is the bigger picture here, and that none of this would be happening if the police were killing people in the first place. And we cannot get distracted from that. I'd like to play a clip uh, from of Tamika Mallory really making a case for the protesters who are out on the street and get your reaction. The reason why buildings are burning are not just for our brother George Floyd. We're they're burning down because people here in Minnesota are saying to people in New York, to people in California, to people in Memphis, to people all across this nation, enough is enough. And we are not responsible for the mental illness that has been inflicted upon our people by the American government, institutions, and those people who are in positions of power. I don't give a damn if they burn down Target. Because Target should be on the streets with us, calling for the justice that our people deserve. Where was AutoZone at the time when Philando Castile was shot in a car, which is what they actually represent? Where were they? So if you are not coming to the people's defense, then don't challenge us when young people and other people who are frustrated and instigated by the people you pay, you are paying instigators to be among our people out there throwing rocks, breaking windows, and burning down buildings. And so young people are responding to that. They are enraged, and there's an easy way to stop it. Arrest the cops. Charge the cops. Charge all the cops. Not just some of them. Not just here in Minneapolis. Charge them in every city across America where our people are being murdered. Charge them everywhere. That's the bottom line. Charge the cops. Do your job. Do what you say this country is supposed to be about, the land of the free for all. It has not been free for black people, and we are tired. Don't talk to us about looting. Y'all are the looters. America has looted black people. America looted the Native Americans when they first came here. So looting is what you do. We learned it from you. We learned violence from you. 
We learned violence from you. The violence was what we learned from you. So if you want us to do better, then damn it, you do better. All righty. Um, Dr. Melina Abdullah, uh, really fiery words there from um, Tamika Mallory. But we know you're exhausted because Black Lives Matter L.A., you all have been on the street. You were there last night. You have been uh, since all of this uh, broke out. Uh, your response, because her her comments really reflect a debate and a discussion on um, the effectiveness of the protests and the kind of protests that are effective. Dr. Melina Abdullah. Sure. I absolutely love Tamika. She broke it all the way down with that statement, and she's been in this work. This is what I love about her, is that it's not just about her words, but it's also about her diligent work. Um, And so I agree with her completely. I think that we've allowed ourselves also to be diverted by this conversation about property crime. So every single uh, media outlet is asking about looting, is asking about, you know, Starbucks window being broken or the suit store being burned down. And I think that that's disrespectful to the names of those folks that we call out. So if we want to honor George Floyd, what are we doing when, you know, we're asking more about or folks are asking more about Starbucks than they are about justice in his name. So I absolutely um, think that that's important to redirect and focus on why we're out there. I think that you can't um, dictate to people how they um, express their rage. And I think it's important that we not do that, not create good protesters and bad protesters. Um, And I also know that if we were quiet, um, if we were just seeking, you know, the system to reform itself, that we no one would even know George Floyd's name, that only because we're out in the streets, only because we're saying loudly and making it um, uncomfortable for people, that's the only reason people are talking about it right now. How are people reacting to to the looting that we've seen? Well, white Americans are are particularly upset about this and have repeatedly on social media and in person have asked black people, is this what Martin Luther King would do? A man of peace. Uh, A couple of points to this. First of all, (laughs) Martin Luther King said a riot is the language of the unheard. I know it's not the I have a dream single that he's known for. It is a bit of a B-side, but still, I think it was, it was, it was a hit in South Africa. Um, <laughs> second point, MLK did speak of nonviolence, and uh, then white people shot and killed him. Uh, so I don't know if we can really, uh, you know, as white people, I don't think white people can really have the moral high ground on this. They well, should have shot him in the, should have shot him in the leg. I reckon, Harry. That would have been yeah, that, that would have been the that would have been the well, democratic solution. Yeah, the classic, <laughs> the classic the classic compromise yeah. <laughs> between shooting someone and not shooting someone, shooting someone in somewhere different. I mean, it also is- rich rich people loot too. It just looks different. Like poor people are breaking into department stores and taking TVs. 
like rich people, like, what is disaster capitalism in New Orleans and Puerto Rico? The I- increased respirator costs because states are forced to bid against each other. Bernie Madoff. Apparently, <laughs> apparently it's only looting if you steal less than $500 and actually put in some physical labor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, looting, economics, you know, it's yeah, very much how you define it. And thank you very much for not referring to the British Museum in that little bit. Much, <laughs> yeah, colonialism, fine, but Nike, not so much. Yeah. Oh, but, but while we're uh, on that, I will say <laughs> that, uh, you know, black people were literally looted. <laughs> Yes. Okay, that's all. I just wanted to say that. Uh, and uh, on that subject, thanks also to Spike Lee, who interviewed by the BBC uh, this week, um, outlined some of the slight flaws in the, the history of the USA that, uh, that contribute to uh, the current situation. He said the land was stolen from native people, genocide was committed against the native people, and ancestors were stolen from Africa and brought here to work. So the foundation of the United States of America is genocide, stealing land, and slavery. And he did not mention Britain by name once. <laughs> Thank you, Spike. Thank you. You are a hero in this country. Much appreciated. Thursday marked the first of many memorials for George Floyd. In Minneapolis, members of his family, loved ones and supporters gathered for a tribute. Floyd's golden casket was covered in red roses. A picture projected on the wall above it showed the mural of Floyd that's been painted at the street corner where he died. The mural reads, I can breathe now. During the tribute, people stood in silence for 8 minutes and 46 seconds, the amount of time police officer Derek Chauvin kneeled on Floyd's neck as he pleaded for his life. Almost three of those minutes, Floyd was unresponsive. This is one of George Floyd's younger brothers, Polonius Floyd. It was just amazing. Everywhere you go and see people, how they cling to him. They wanted to be around him. You know, George, he was like a general. Every day he walks outside, it'd be a line of people, like just like when we came in, wanting to greet him and wanted to have fun with him. Uh, guys that was doing drugs like uh, smokers and homeless people, you couldn't tell because when you spoke to George, they felt like they was the president because that's how he made you feel. Wow. He, he, was, he was powerful, man. He had a way with words. He could always make you ready to jump and go all the time. Everybody loved George. We didn't call him George. We called him Perry. If you if you called him Perry, you knew him direct. <laughs> you know, because <what> I mean? <laughs> George was the name everybody called him. Big George, uh, Big Floyd. You know, Georgie Porgy. He had so many different names. But I'm gonna go ahead and let. I'm just, man, it's crazy, man. All these people came to see my brother, and that's amazing to me that he touched so many people's hearts, you know, because he been touching our hearts, you know. Um, you come to Third Ward, where we're from, people are crying right now. That's how much they love them. You know, I'm just staying strong as I can because I need to get it out. I need to get it out. Everybody wants justice. We want justice for George. He's going to get it. He's going to get it. 
George Floyd's younger brother, Polonius Floyd, speaking during the Tribute Thursday in Minneapolis, where Reverend Al Sharpton announced he's joining with the families of people killed by police to organize a march on Washington on August 28th, the 57th anniversary of the historic demonstration for civil rights led by Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. It's also the day in 1955 Emmett Till was lynched. Reverend Sharpton urged those gathered Thursday to stand up in George's name and say, get your knee off our necks. George Floyd's story has been the story of black folks, because ever since 401 years ago, the reason we could never be who we wanted and dreamed to be in is you kept your knee on our neck. We were smarter than the underfunded schools you put us in, but you had your knee on our neck. We could run corporations and not hustle in the street, but you had your knee on our neck. We had creative skills. We could do whatever anybody else could do. But we couldn't get your knee off our neck. What happened to Floyd happens every day in this country, in education, in health services, and in every area of American life. It's time for us to stand up in George's name and say, get your knee off our necks. With the country in turmoil, hundreds of thousands of Americans are protesting against systematic racism and police brutality. No justice, no peace. No justice, no peace. Tens of thousands of Americans protesting peacefully, filling cities and towns across the country. In Washington, D.C., for eight minutes, 46 seconds, thousands of protesters lying down across the Black Lives Matter plaza. In New York City, demonstrators swarmed Times Square. In Austin, thousands cried, no justice, no peace. In Green Bay, Wisconsin, demonstrators closing down a bridge. In all 50 states, people of all colors all joined together. In Los Angeles, they took the notion of a peaceful protest to a whole new lotus, adding in yoga. In Houston, some marched by horseback, while on Maui, they gathered on surfboards at sunset. That is really amazing. Never before in American history, Has there been an uprising like this, exactly like this, where you have huge numbers of people coming out every single day in every single state in the country? And it's particularly noticeable because it's almost completely spontaneous. Usually big demonstrations take months of planning, publicizing, getting permits. These ones are just, hey, yo, meet me outside in five minutes and people are there. Since starting in Minnesota after the murder of George Floyd, These protests for black lives have spread like nobody could have imagined, from tens of thousands of people in big multi-ethnic cities to 200 people in towns that are 90% white. And now, even more impressive is that this protest has started blowing up all over the world. In Paris, they marched, as they did in Rome and Tokyo. 
In Hungary, a silent crowd took a knee for eight minutes and 46 seconds. COVID-19 kept Thai protesters off the streets, but on screen in a massive Zoom session. In London, joining this protest mattered far more than the lockdown rules. Thousands, many masked against coronavirus, gathered outside the American embassy. Your message is heard over here, and, and we'll keep fighting the same fight that you are. We'll keep fighting the same fight that you are. Yeah. That right there, that right there is why this movement has become as big as it has. Because everyone, everyone is now realizing that we're all in the same fight. Like these protests may have been sparked by one killing in one American city, but the truth is, the truth is that if you are a black person or a minority or a poor person in many places around the world, in London, Berlin, Seoul, Cape Town, you understand what it means to be a target of the police and a target of a system that is designed to keep you down with violence if necessary. And that's why you now have people in every country standing together, standing together to say, this is not acceptable anymore, black lives matter. And whenever there are big protests, whenever there are big protests, there's always gonna be people who stand on the sidelines, right? There's always gonna be people who sit in their, in their newspaper offices or TV news studios and say, I sympathize with you, but this is not the way to get what you want. This is not the way that you should be doing it. Protesting is a waste of time. It turns people off. It's just performative. It doesn't accomplish anything. Well, you know what? I hope those people are hungry because they're gonna be eating their words. Because after two weeks, Just after two weeks of these protests, we're already seeing incredible results, both large and small. For example, for decades, Americans have been arguing about Confederate monuments and other racist statues littered around this country. The people have said, take them down. And government officials have said, oh, we'll think about it, we'll study it, we'll start a commission, we'll get back to you. Well, this time, the people said, take them down. And the government officials responded with, yeah, you're right. There were cheers Thursday night at the foot of Richmond's Robert E. Lee statue after the governor announced the monument, which stood for 130 years, is coming down. Mobile, Alabama, removed a Confederate statue this morning. And Indianapolis announced this one is coming down. For days, protesters in Philadelphia have tried to tear down this controversial statue of former mayor and police commissioner Frank Rizzo, widely accused of being a symbol of racism for his tactics against the black community in the 1960s. 60s and 70s, the city taking it down in the middle of the night. Yes, in Philadelphia, they decided to take down a statue of a racist police commissioner. And I guess the question we should be asking is, why did a racist police commissioner have a statue in the first place? And yeah, there are still, there are still people out there who are like, yeah, but if you take down the statues, how will people learn their history? These statues are about his, read a book, motherfucker. That's how you learn history. No one really thinks that these statues are teaching anybody history. The bubonic plague was a major event in history. We don't go around putting up statues of rats. You don't see that shit anywhere. And speaking of learning, that's another thing that these protesters are affecting. That's another area that that, that we're seeing the impact of the protests. Because people, people, just average people, are hearing these conversations about racism and policing. And they're saying, you know what? Since there are no statues, maybe I should read. 
Books on systemic racism are making bestseller lists as protests continue across the country. Six of the top 10 bestselling books on Amazon are on the topic of race in America. White Fragility, The New Jim Crow, and Just Mercy are some of the books at the top of Amazon and Barnes and Noble's bestselling list today. Esawan is sold out of the book How to Be an Anti-Racist and has hundreds on back order. James thinks they've received a total of 3,000 online orders this week alone. And eventually had to stop accepting them. Yes, thanks to the protests and thanks to the conversations and thanks to people pushing, Americans are so concerned about what's happening in their country right now that books about race and racism in America are sold out. And yes, I know a lot of people might say it's too little too late. Why are you only reading now? That is a good question. But I think at the same time, we've got to be happy that people are reading now. How many times have we seen a video? How many times have there been protests and no books have been bought? No conversations have been had. So this is movement. This is progress in the right direction. And you can see that it's working because people aren't just buying books. People are saying black lives matter and they're not just saying it. They're saying it in public. Black lives matter has become the phrase that people admit needs to be said. And maybe it's because of George Floyd's video. Maybe it's because the whole world was forced to sit at home and watch that video, but it's happening. Everyone from Mitt Romney to K-pop fans are saying Black Lives Matter. Corporations are saying Black Lives Matter. Amazon, Bud Light, Gushers, everyone is saying Black Lives Matter. And don't get me wrong, I don't know if these companies are actually gonna do something to show that they believe Black Lives Matter other than just saying it, but it is still a major step to have American corporations who just a few years ago were terrified of that phrase saying it as part of their corporate ethos. This is interesting because, you know, reading your book, I've been thinking about the last couple of months about how companies and brands, right, have reacted in the past. And now in this moment, they're having these reckonings and they're making statements in solidarity with the movement. And I just need to step back because I'm still kind of like, what the hell? <laughs> the National Football League, the league's commissioner, Roger Goodell, he released a statement saying that the NFL supports athletes protesting peacefully. We, the National Football League, condemn racism and the systematic oppression of black people. We, the National Football League, admit we were wrong for not listening to NFL players earlier and encourage all to speak out and peacefully protest. We, the National Football League, believe black lives matter. I personally protest with you and want to be part of the much needed change in this country. And here's the thing. He doesn't mention Colin Kaepernick specifically. The statement, it comes out only after NFL players like Patrick Mahomes, Deshaun Watson, and other players, they put out a video calling out the league for their silence. How many times do we need to ask you to listen to your players? What will it take for one of us to be murdered by police brutality? What if I was George Floyd? If I was George Floyd? What if I was George Floyd? 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 I am George Floyd. I am Breonna Taylor. I am Ahmaud Arbery. I am Eric Gordon. I am Laquan McDonald. I am Tamir Rice. I am Trayvon Martin. I am Walter Scott. I am Michael Brown. I am Samuel Du Bois. I am Frank Smart. I'm Philip White. I am Jordan Baker. We will not be silenced. We assert our right to peacefully protest. It shouldn't take this long to admit. So 
This feels like a moment where protesters are not letting anyone off the hook in this movement for racial justice. But it also feels to me, you know, a little bit too convenient about how fast corporations are moving to put out these, you know, Black Lives Matter statements. So, Howard, I've been wanting to ask you this question because it's so central to the book and what we talk about. What do you make of the NFL statement and then the marketing of a movement? Is this just another way brands are co-opting this moment? Yeah, well, the first question is that the NFL has zero credibility as far as I'm concerned for the very simple reason that they didn't mention Colin Kaepernick's name and the really very simple reason that there's not a corporation in America over the last four years that has made it more clear how they felt about kneeling. And it made it more clear how they felt about black lives being damaged and taken by police. There's no ambiguity about how the NFL's position has been where they've stood. So to see them jump on board with this, I just looked at this and I was like, okay, one, we know it's complete BS. And two, we realize what they're doing. The power of professional football runs through the quarterback in terms of player power. And so when you look at that new video last Thursday and you see Deshaun Watson and Patrick Mahomes, two of the best quarterbacks in football, right. and Patrick Mahomes is a Super Bowl winning quarterback and is probably the best player in the league, right. then what you see is Roger Goodell trying to head this off at the pass. Because it's one thing to have Malcolm Jenkins, who's a defensive back, or Eric Reed, another defensive back, or to Kenny Stills, a wide receiver. Exactly. It's one thing to have those peripheral positions talk about these issues, or a Colin Kaepernick who's exiled and, and wasn't at the top of his game. It's another when you have the best player in the game advocating these positions. And so you saw a political move. It was a proactive move. It was not a retroactive move. They are not retroactively going to go back and say to Colin Kaepernick, we're sorry. Yeah. The other part of this that's very important in terms of understanding how the NFL works is Roger Goodell works for the owners. And at no point during this story over the last few weeks have you seen any owner come forward and say, Colin Kaepernick is welcome to play in this league. Exactly. None of them have come forward. And the four most powerful owners in the game, the two venerable ones, the Roonies in Pittsburgh and the Maras with the New York Giants, and then, of course, Bob Kraft with the Patriots and Jerry Jones with the Dallas Cowboys, they run this sport. And they have all been completely silent on this. So you know that what's really happening here is this is Roger Goodell essentially being told, look, we pay you $45 million a year to protect us, you're going to have to take the L on this for the public, come off as the reasonable one, make us look good. But there's no movement right now to get Colin Kaepernick in the NFL. And just as more evidence for the fast moving nature of this story within the last 24 hours or so from when I'm recording, the NFL has shifted once again and now says that they are uh, openly in favor of Colin Kaepernick coming back to the NFL and is encouraging teams to sign him. I want to talk to you about how viciously racist the NFL owners have been throughout this entire process, because it's not, you know, people will sometimes excuse it by saying, well, look, you know, it's not the NFL owners. It's that the NFL fans are so racist. And so that's why the owners are just trying to make a buck. I'm not sure that makes it better, but that's not true. So are there some NFL fans who are racist? Of course. Are they you know, plenty that object to Kaepernick? Yes. But there's, millions upon millions who agree with Kaepernick. I don't know what the percentages are, 
But I'd be actually surprised if most didn't agree with Kaepernick. Now, if you're looking at it from a capitalist point of view and all you care about is making money, well, every uh, person who follows sports knows this, and it's now a verifiable fact. When Nike did the ad campaign around Kaepernick, after all the protesting and the kneeling, et cetera, and him getting kicked out of the league, in effect, their stock market uh, price first went down because all the elites thought, oh, no, 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 we hate Kaepernick. We, we, we love when uh, black people are abused by the police. Uh, no, America's not going to like this. It turns out America loved what Nike did, and they bought lots and lots of sneakers. And then Nike's stock market cap, their, their value of the company, went up by $6 billion. I was talking to John Sally on our new Twitch show uh, just yesterday, twitch.tv slash TYT. Check that out. And John Sally knows a thing or two about sports, three-time uh, or four-time NBA champion with three different teams. And, and he agreed. He's like, look, man, if, if anybody, we're talking about how the Raiders should sign him. But if any team signs Kaepernick, they're going to break every record there is on jersey sales. And anyone who knows sports knows that. Because even if the racists don't buy it, who cares? Everyone who supports Kaepernick, which is, as Nike found out, a gajillion people, they're all going to buy the jerseys. So the reason I tell you that is because the NFL owners are deep capitalists. They know that. But to them, their racism was more important than even money. Isn't that amazing? Uh, and so, so now Roger Goodell, the NFL commissioner, coming out and saying, in essence, we were wrong. Um, you know what that means? Now, you'll know, you won't hear this anywhere else. That means we are beginning to win the culture wars. Roger Goodell is not a thing. Like, he doesn't get to make the decision. Uh, no, he has to go and talk to all the owners. He's their boy. And so the owners tell him what to do. And for now, for however many years, they've been telling him, crush Kaepernick. We're none of it. We're all banding together to make sure that he's not in the league, even though he's clearly one of the top 96 quarterbacks in the country. That's absurd to think he's not. If you think he's not, you're not a football fan and, and you don't know a thing. Uh, and, and they all know. Of course. And by the way, now that the, it's broken, maybe there'll be a competition for Kaepernick. We'll see. We'll see. Okay. But that's the same guy, the same guy from yet just two weeks ago who would have said, no way. We're not, and in effect, did say it. We're never going to have Kaepernick because he's protesting on behalf of black people. And we don't want that in that NFL. So now he turns around and says, oh, no, no, I didn't mean it because I didn't realize there were so many black players. I didn't know we had lost the country. And that's why it's so important. It's more important that he doesn't believe it and said it anyway, because that means we broke them. Guys, that's you. I'm telling you how important that is. That, that is a giant cultural shift. That is really, really greedy people, the greediest people in the country saying, you know what? It turns out we're going to make more money because there's more of them than there is a racist. Oh, my God, that is it. And to them, that's a big shock. They're used to appealing to racists who love to crush African-Americans in this country. And, and they think that's the average football fan. Apparently, they just realized, no, the average football player and the average football fan does not want you to be terrible and abuse African-Americans. So now they're turning around. That turnaround is a sea change. That's a giant win in the culture wars. And I, unlike other uh, Democrats, progressives, whatever you want to label you want to give them, I'm super happy to participate in the culture wars.
the right wing does the culture wars, and most of the time the left wing uh, goes, oh, that's so bad, don't do that, and goes and crawls in a cave. Not me. Our culture is better than your culture. Your culture is one of protecting heritage no matter what, even if that heritage is hateful and racist, etc. My culture is one of change and progress and treating everyone equally. I am more American than you, and, uh, I, and my culture is better than yours. And my culture just won. That is the NFL saying we were wrong. We shouldn't have done that to Kaepernick, and we shouldn't have disrespected all African-Americans in this country. And I'm thrilled about that victory. How much would you say the whole world has reacted to the killing of George Floyd? Well, to be honest with you, I would say a huge amount. You listed some of the protests that have been going on um, ever since he was killed on Memorial Day in your country. And the reaction was almost instantaneous. I mean, not just on the streets, which has been pretty constant in all the capitals you mentioned, uh, with the murals, with the, you know, even in more flung, far-flung places, which may not have black minorities, but which also have histories of oppression and injustice and ethnic um, repression. So this is something that has really touched a nerve. And not only that, I'll just say this at this point, um, it's also sort of got even America's adversaries, even in the leadership uh, uh, area, to when they seem to be lectured by President Trump, for instance, the Chinese uh, immediately tweeted back from the foreign ministry, I can't breathe. In Iran, the foreign minister tweeted, Black Lives Matter. I mean, you can add a level of, of somewhat hypocrisy to those if you like, but the fact of the matter is that from the top of the halls of power to the streets, this has created and caused a massive wave of solidarity, solidarity and attention around the world. Neither racism itself nor cases of American police violence caught on video are new. Why do you think this case touched off the global reaction you were just describing so much more than previous ones? Well, look, I, I, I think I leave it to the black community in the United States to describe for themselves why. I think the most overriding message that I have received is exhaustion and just enough is enough. It's just enough. And I think in the rest of the world, you have also solidarity movements, but you also have many countries which are not only still grappling with their colonial and racist past, well, even the one I'm sitting in right now, London, the United Kingdom, we can talk about that in a moment. Mm -hmm. But in many of the other places, in, in parts of the Middle East, in, in parts of, you know, you can imagine uh, amongst the Palestinians, amongst many, many people, a history of, of oppression is something that, you know, they've been protesting against for a long, long time. So they perhaps see this unacceptable use of brute force against George Floyd as, as, the, as the straw that breaks the camel's back, the tipping point, uh, particularly in the political and cultural and social and economic environment that we find ourselves in now and for the past several years. Christian, do you want to talk more about the UK since that's where you are? What's happening there today? Yes, I do. And today actually is kind of interesting because, as you know, and I've spoken, we have uh, had had 
rolling protests since since they started in the United States. Big, big protests. And not just uh, the, the black community, but others as well coming out in solidarity. And I think that's also a major thing to, to point out, that it's cross-cultural. Um, people coming out to support the black community, knowing that this is, you know, finally an, an, an unacceptable level of persistent violence that despite every lost life, and including here in the UK, clearly it is not the same situation in terms of police violence here as it is in the United States. But we do and we have had, uh, you know, black boys and men killed unarmed by by police. So this is a big, big issue. And of course, we exist at the same time in a situation where, like in the United States, the, the people bearing the brunt of the infections and the deaths and the economic deprivation of the coronavirus pandemic, who are they? They are the black community and other minorities, but certainly the black community who are not only under-resourced and suffering from the legacy and the existence of racism, but who also happen to be there on our front lines. These are the people who we're meant to be clapping every single week and saying thank you for being the heroes of this moment. And yet they're the ones bearing the brunt of, of all this, this violence. And so what we've had is today, there will be at about the same time as George Floyd's funeral in Houston, there will be a protest at Oxford University and they will again uh, rally around the very, very divisive issue and subject of Cecil Rhodes, um, who, as you know, was the colonial uh, leader who um, colonized Zimbabwe, then Rhodesia, etc., and who's been an incredible um, divisive force on campus by the black community there, black students, and maybe maybe now we'll see something happen to his statue. We certainly saw it over the weekend protest in Bristol, where the statue of a 17th century um, slave trader by the name of Edward Colston was in scenes that I have not seen since, you know, we saw Lenin coming down in the Soviet Union and across the Eastern Bloc when the wall fell, when we saw Saddam coming down, uh, his statue, Saddam Hussein, after the 2003 Iraq War. Here in the United Kingdom, we see the statue of a slave trader pulled down and thrust into the Bristol Harbor because this guy was became very rich on the sale of human beings. His ships would go from Bristol, they would dock in Africa, they would pick up their human cargo and then go on to the United States, um, to America. And these are issues uh, that historical issues that people here are reckoning with, but then of course there's the real day-to-day -day issues of, of, uh, of racism in ways that still uh, unfairly penalize people because of the color of their skin. Officials from countries that are U.S. allies and, and then also leaders uh, from countries that are on far less friendly terms with the U.S. have roundly contempt, condemned the killing of George Floyd. Is that unusual? Do, do foreign leaders normally speak out on specific cases like this? Or, or do you think they're perhaps um, taking what they're hearing from the protests in their own countries and turning that around with public condemnations against the United States and United States policy? There's no question that leaders throughout the world feel the pressure of these movements, and there is a message to them as well. I think the thing that struck me the most was that the European Union, which is a group of, of almost 30 countries that we have helped form to prevent war in Europe 
again, came out with a statement that normally is reserved for dictators. It said it looked forward to all the resolution of all issues with full respect for the rule of law and human rights. And, and so that was a kind of message that resonated among their own constituents, but I think reflected this, you know, shaming of the United States and particularly of President Trump over the way this has, this issue has exploded across American cities. Yasmin, you you live in the UK, you grew up in Australia, both places uh, had major protests this weekend. What is policing in, in black communities and in the UK look like and then indigenous communities in Australia look like? Yeah, so I'll start with Australia. And I think the um, for context, the Australian indigenous population or communities also refer to themselves as black. And so when we talk about policing black communities in Australia, quite a lot of that is also the relationship between Australian um, sort of broadly white police, settler police, and the First Nations populations. And I mean, it's it's so comparable to the United States. There are police deaths in custody. Um, I think there's been over 400 deaths in custody since 91. And interestingly, more police have been promoted after a death in custody than have actually been charged or convicted for any sort of crime. Wow. And the, yeah, the incarceration rates, I mean, I think it's about in, in Northern Territory, for example, which is one of the states of Australia, I think population of young people in detention are Indigenous. And there's only about 3.3% of the Australian population is Indigenous and 28% of the of the um, population of those who are incarcerated are Indigenous. And even, even when there were protests this weekend, hundreds of thousands of people across Australia came out. There was a death in custody during the same time that the protests were going on. And so it's been something that Indigenous communities and, and Aboriginal communities have been speaking about for decades. The other context I'll give is that the way that Australia was founded was that when the British came, they declared Australia terra nullius, which essentially means they did not have to sign any treaties with the Indigenous population because they deemed the country uninhabited. And any Indigenous people, they tried to kill all the Indigenous people, but any left, they were then wards of the state. And so similarly with the United States, we have a very brutal history between the black communities and the police. Similarly in Australia, you have that with the Indigenous people and the police. The UK, the history of the police is, is different, but definitely analogous. And the other thing that I always point out with the Brits is they offshored the worst of their racist brutality. That was what the empire was about. And so often people are like, oh, you know, we don't have the kind of racism here. We don't have the kind of police brutality here in the UK that, you know, you might see in the US or you might see in Australia. But firstly, as I always remind them, it came from the UK, it came from Britain. But also when you look at things like Grenfell, which was this building full of social housing that was set on fire, uh, essentially, and, and almost every, like hundreds of folks died. And it was awful. And it was in one of the wealthiest areas of London. And there's there's been sort of no change since then. Or if you look at the, the Windrush generation, so the Brits after the war asked for folks from the Caribbean communities to come to the UK to help them rebuild. And they said, oh, you know, you're, you're British citizens, it's all fine. And then they lost, quote unquote, um, the the citizenship paperwork. And so the way that the Brits do their racism, so to speak, is maybe not as blatant, 
but it's exceptionally racist and the way that it's baked into all of the institutions makes it almost more difficult to point to because it's so part of the norm. Look, I've been around a while. I'm a bit older than you are, but you have covered protests and written about some of these issues a lot more than than I have observed. But this is pretty remarkable. Day after day after day, not in one city. I mean, Rodney, the Rodney King protests back in 1992, I think were largely limited to Los Angeles. This is widespread, not only in the United States. There are images of large protests in Europe, in Amsterdam, in Paris. This is not the first time this kind of tragic killing has occurred at the hands of a white officer where the victim is an unarmed black man. Why do you think, or do you have an explanation for why now the protests are so massive and so widespread? Yeah, even as you were speaking and as we were thinking about things going viral, I mean, uprising is going viral as well. Even just this morning before you guys called, I was looking at a, a video on Twitter from New Zealand of people doing the traditional haka, the Maori ceremonial ritual in support of Black Lives Matter. And I guess, you know, to a certain extent, the way that we can very quickly, you know, take a video and see injustice being done is also the same tool with which we can capture inspiration in a way and capture that spirit, I guess, of protesting, of speaking out, of basically calling for calling for justice to create better societies. So I think it speaks to technology, honestly. We know that, yes, technology can be a tool that for surveillance and for oppression, targeting, all of that. But again, it can also be a way to connect us all in many of these struggles that very much are global, that we were already, I mean, it's not just Americans sitting at home. Many people around the world are still dealing with the coronavirus as well. So there really isn't anywhere to run or, or to go, except in a way out into the streets. And this notion that people are, especially in places where the coronavirus has not been controlled, that they're willing to risk their lives, basically. Well, it's a remarkable thing. I, I remember thinking that, you know, you have approaching 25 or 30 percent unemployment, 100,000 people dead, lots and lots of failures of leadership at the state level, the local level, the national level. That didn't bring people out. But the death of George Floyd did. Mm. Well, I think one of the most significant aspects of what's going on is the international protests, particularly in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, where the African Union headquarters there called in the United States representative to read them the riot act and to dress down the U.S. representative as to what's going on in the streets of the United States of America. In the interest of full disclosure, I should say as well that in the last few days, I've been appearing repetitively in the mass media of uh, Russia, Turkey, and particularly Iran, 
And one of the points I've been stressing is, number one, that the Iranians should drag the United States into the docks before the United Nations Human Rights Commission, charging them with human rights violations against black people. And number two, that the Iranians should spur the organization worldwide of a committee in support of black people in the United States of America. And I think that this is necessary because those of us recall the jury in the first Rodney King case know that just because you have a crime committed on tape does not mean that the perpetrators will be convicted. And I think Attorney General Keith Ellison of Minnesota, who's taken over this prosecution, made that clear in his press conference a few days ago. This is due in no small measure to the fact that the roots of this problem go deep. They go back to slavery and the fact that black people, particularly black men, are still treated like slaves. But more than that, it's that we're treated like counter-revolutionaries. What I mean is, is that the revolt against British rule leading to the formation of the United States of America was driven no small measure by slavery. Africans did not support slavery and therefore supported the Red Coast. And therefore, we have been treated like criminals in waiting. And interestingly enough, this is an argument that's easily accepted by many black people. Witness the adaptation of this argument by Pulitzer Prize winner Nicole Hannah-Jones in her 1619 project in the New York Times. And it's also accepted abroad. If you look at the Financial Times tomorrow, the Bible of the investor class in Western Europe, you'll see that this particular argument is highlighted. But unfortunately and sadly, for various reasons, across Euro-America, more generally, this argument is not necessarily accepted, which means that when you have these juries who acquit criminals committing crimes on tape, it's always treated as some sort of coincidence, a sort of one-off, that's not who we are, and all the rest. And I think that the international community increasingly is not buying that argument. I think even the so-called allies are not buying that argument. And that's why these international protests are so significant and so profound. We've just heard clips today, starting with Code Switch, describing the cost of years of watching black people die on the internet. Democracy Now! spoke with Tamika Mallory about the impact of the protests. Trevor Noah from The Daily Show gave his thoughts on the social contract that's been broken between the black community and wider society. Newsbeat spoke with Larry Hamm for a historical perspective on uprisings in response to police violence. This is Hell discussed the structural robbery and looting of the black community. Sojourner Truth Radio highlighted and responded to a viral speech by Tamika Mallory. The Bugle highlighted the thin line between looting and what we think of as standard economics. Democracy Now! played clips from George Floyd's funeral, including George's brother and Reverend Al Sharpton. The Daily Show showed the spread and immediate effectiveness of the protests around the world. In the Thick discussed the NFL's surprising, yet still lackluster, turnaround on opposing systemic racism. The Young Turks showed how the NFL's turnaround, lackluster though it may be, is still a major indicator in the turning of the tide of the culture wars. 
The Brian Lehrer Show spoke with Christian Amanpour about the international spread of the uprising. The Takeaway connected racism with the legacy of colonialism. Stay Tuned with Preet did more of the same. And finally, you just heard Sojourner Truth Radio highlighting the foreign condemnation of structural racism in the U.S. justice system. Now, last up today, I have today's activism segment. You have reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, join the 619 rallies virtually, locally, or in D.C. Juneteenth. That's June 19th through the 21st. There is something different about this moment. In just a few weeks, the organic uprisings across the country and the globe are seeing results that would have seemed unfathomable only a month before. This momentum cannot be lost, which is why the Movement for Black Lives has organized 619, kicking off Juneteenth. That's this Friday, June 19th. The 619 rallies will be held in communities all over the country, in front of the White House in D.C. and even virtually throughout the weekend. The 619 mobilization has three demands. The first is defund the police. This means the reallocation of bloated and outsized police budgets back to critical community resources such as public education, houselessness, and mental health. It's time to rethink the role of police and center health, safety, and well-being. Use of force regulations are important, but they are insufficient as a solution to the problem of police violence, either incrementally or as a tool of transformation. The second demand is to invest in black communities. The economic crisis we're experiencing now comes at the tail end of decades of divestment in black communities and black people. Divert wasteful spending on police militarization and invest in community-directed programs like healthcare, education, and housing. And the third and final demand is call for the resignation of Donald Trump. This one doesn't need much explanation, but Trump has a long, well-documented history of racism and weaponizing hate. The protests have only further exposed his authoritarian, violent tendencies. It is time for him to resign. To join this mobilization, go to 619.com. That's the words written out, 6 and 19, to learn more. Find an event near you or register an event you're hosting. Text DEFEND to 90975 to get updates on the 619 action from Juneteenth and beyond. You can also follow the Movement for Black Lives on Twitter for the latest and use the hashtag DEFENDBLACKLIVES to engage. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestofleft.com. So if Black Lives Matter to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about joining the 619 rallies Friday the 19th through the 21st, virtually, locally, or in D.C. via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. I now leave you with some of the voices of the, the uprising. We are not the problem. The police are not the problem. I don't care what you think. I don't care how angry you are. They are working under a system. The problem is the system. There's no 
such thing as a peaceful protest. Means our protest. There's non-violent protests. But the protests are not supposed to be peaceful. I'm not singing We Shall Overcome and skipping down a bridge. This is supposed to make people think about the systems they've created. I can't tell white people to fix up 400 years that they messed up. I, that's not my job to fix. Why is it black people's job to fix up white people? I, I don't know. Learn the definitions of all three because the media keeps confusing them. Thank you. That's all I have to say. We are united. We are united. We are united. I can't even begin to describe or tell you the amount of times I've been racially profiled. First time it ever happened, I was seven years old. Didn't even understand it. The second time it happened to me, I was 12. And then 14. And then 15. And then by 17, I had a gun pressed to my chest. But the worst one for me has always been Tamir Rice. A 12-year-old kid, a 12-year-old kid playing with a toy gun and they shot him. And it's, and it's got to stop. And it, it's really got to stop. I believe without a doubt that change will come from this protest. Because this protest won't stop until change comes. For the first time ever, I am seeing a sea of people at these protests. It is not just black people. It is not just leftist people. It is not any political group. It is America who is upset because there's an injustice. Injustice is injustice. White people see it. Mexicans see it. Chinese see it. It does not matter who you are. You see the injustice and you no longer want it. That's why this is the revolution that's going to change it. Everybody, you beautiful! You're beautiful! Our leaders got assassinated. And I'm pretty sure when they left this world, they knew that change wasn't done. They knew that they had more work to do. And I feel like it's up to us, not even us black youth, all of the youth to make a change. I don't feel like it's the last effort. I don't feel like this is the last protest, but I'll do as many as I have to to make sure that we get justice.